as we remain standing in body or in spirit, uh, we come before God's word, very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have reciting uh, what they called the Shema, and Jesus would eventually call the great commandment. We uh, do it in Hebrew to remind us of our roots uh, uh, that Jesus had as uh, a loyal and faithful Jew, and uh, then we do it together in English. If you'll follow after me, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This morning we've come in our uh, walk through Exodus to the Red Sea. As you may recall, the Pharaoh uh, said the Israelites could go, then changed his mind and began to chase them. And uh, God had had Moses take the people along a rather uh, circuitous route along the sea. And so as a result, uh, the Israelites ended up being trapped with the sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army and chariots uh, behind them. And uh, they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 14. And so Moses stretched his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord uh, pushed the sea back with a strong east wind until it parted and uh, there was dry ground and the waters were divided and the Israelites walked through the sea on the dry grounds and the waters were piled up on their right and on their left. Now, the Egyptians uh, pursued uh, the Israelites, and uh, Pharaoh's chariots and horses and horsemen followed them into the sea. But about the fourth watch of the night, uh, the Lord looked down from the pillar of cloud and fire upon the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. And he caused, uh, he jammed the wheels of uh, their chariots, so they had great difficulty driving. And so the Egyptians uh, cried out, let us get away from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand back over the sea and cause the waters to flow back over uh, Pharaoh's uh, chariots and horsemen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Now, for centuries, people have debated this miracle at the Red Sea and, and what caused it, especially, or at the Sea of Reeds, to part. Uh, now, some people say it's at the Red Sea. Others find it in a different area called the Sea of Reeds. And, and I used to get offended when people would say it wasn't the Red Sea. Uh, and then uh, my colleague Scott Hare went to Israel with, uh, and Egypt with Ray Vanderland, and he noticed that in the temple, I think, of Karnak, One of the things the Egyptians saw, which um, the Israelites would have known about, is you would go in the temple and there would be all these carved figures and the carves were, the carvings were of reeds. And you would pass through the reeds and come out on the other side and you would be in the Egyptian promised land. And so the picture was, go through the sea of reeds. And you will be free and you will reach your destination. So uh, either way is a powerful picture for me. But the debate has been going on for centuries about just how this parting of the sea, whichever sea it was, how did it happen? And uh, in decades, uh, in the recent decades, it's intensified because now you have all sorts of cable channels and they want to do specials. So maybe you've seen one like Exodus Decoded or Exodus Revealed or another documentary called The Red Sea Crossing and different scientists will have their hypothesis about what natural phenomenon 
cause the sea to part so that the Israelites can go through on uh, dry ground. And, and even these experts don't agree with each other. Uh, some of them say that it was a freak weather phenomenon. Uh, others, I remember one in particular, said it was a volcano in a different geographical area that caused the parting of, uh, of the sea in this area. And still, there's a third group that says that in one particular area, known as the Sea of Reeds, most of the year it's like eight inches deep. But at times, all of a sudden, uh, it can become very deep. And Napoleon himself, um, uh, his army was almost drowned at the same place because the waters came back and what was eight inches deep became many feet deep and he wasn't ready for it. So there's all sorts of explanations. And, uh, but my two cents worth this morning is I, I think the Bible is very clear that God is involved. That what you have in this victory uh, at the sea is a miraculous event. And uh, we talked last week about this pillar of cloud and fire that would lead the people. Um, Also, an angel would get in front of the people toward the end of this, and the cloud would be between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And the cloud was so dense that the Egyptians were in darkness and couldn't penetrate the cloud uh, to get any closer uh, to the Israelites. Uh, so there, uh, And then the waters, when they're parted by whatever phenomenon, they end up stacking up, which is pretty much a supernatural phenomenon, so, so they can go through on the dry ground. So the Bible wants to claim certainly God's direct involvement. And it's possible God may have used natural phenomenon to do this. Uh, we're told that God causes the wind to blow that separates, um, separates the sea. Uh, so I'm not really interested in all that this morning, now that I've taken five minutes of your time. I'm a little bit more interested this morning in what were the human contributions to the miracle at the sea? How did humans play a role? And I want to pick out a few examples so that we can look at. The first example is this. I want to tell you, I think the Israelites played a role in the miraculous crossing and victory uh, here at the sea. Um, and a tradition tells us, this is not in the Bible, this tradition is that, you know, Moses raises his hand, God's causing this wind to blow, but the seas have not parted yet until uh, an Israelite named Nashon, N-A-S-H-O-N, steps in into the full depth of the water, and then it begins to part. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but that's interesting because that's similar to the story told about the Jordan River when they crossed the Jordan 40 years after uh, the sea. They only cross it when the priests who are carrying the ark, uh, dressed in their full robes and not knowing how to swim, jump in the, the swollen river, and then it parts. So there, there's a response of faith on the part of the people that uh, allows this miracle to happen. And then, of course, the Israelites, whether Nashon jumped in or not, because that's, again, a tradition that's not in the Bible, what we do know is once the waters started parting, they had the faith to go ahead and cross on dry ground. Well, you might think, well, that's no big deal. The ground was dry. And I would ask you, have you ever been afraid that you would be caught in an elevator door that was closing before you got completely in? Have you ever been in a parking garage and thought, well, maybe the arm of the gate is going to come and and hit your car? Have you ever wondered if the other shoe was going to drop? So can you imagine walking through this dry ground and seeing the waters piled up on either side and wondering what's holding them back? 
And when are they going to come back where they started? And so I think it's a, it's a real act of faith on the part of Israelites that helps this miracle take place. And so I want to give them credit because uh, the rest of the time I know this summer we've been bashing the Israelites for their faithfulness, faithlessness and their complaining against Moses. So we'll give them some credit this morning. But I also want to tell you, this is what really interested me this week. I think the Egyptians played a role in, uh, in their own destruction at the sea. I think the Egyptians contributed mightily to this miracle for the Israelites. Because walk with me for a few minutes through Exodus and think of all the things the Egyptians have seen. They've seen ten plagues. They've seen apparently this pillar of cloud and fire. They've seen darkness that has, and then a thick cloud that's uh, been impenetrable to where they couldn't catch up uh, and, and cross through the cloud to get the Israelites yet. And now they're seeing the seas parting right in front of them. Have they noticed a pattern yet? I mean, is anything becoming obvious to them yet that maybe, maybe something bigger than them is going on here? And yet, stubbornly, in the spite of all these miraculous and amazing signs, they still walk right into the trap. What compelled them to do this? Uh, This week I thought about a famous phrase. Um, It's um, attributed to the Native Americans, uh, Dakota tribe, Dakota tribes people. And the phrase you probably heard goes something like this. When the horse dies, the best strategy is to dismount. When your horse you're riding dies, get off. And for some strange reason, the Egyptians keep riding this horse. They keep going, even though it's getting worse and worse and harder and harder. They stubbornly stay with it. And so I'm scratching my head saying, why did they contribute so mightily to their own self-destruction? Why did they keep riding that dead horse? Well, a couple of possibilities occurred to me this morning, and one we've already sort of alluded to in our peace and prayer time this morning. One of them is there's a certain stubbornness about the Egyptians. I mean, that this is kind of who they are. This is what they do. They oppress people. They chase people. They conquer people. They enslave people. That's what it is to be an Egyptian uh, uh, more, uh, more than uh, 14, 15 centuries before Jesus. That's just, as the commercial says, that's who you are. That's what you do. They oppress, they enslave, and they do it so often that they don't even see the warning signs anymore that are put in front of them. Ancient rabbis used to teach something I think that's interesting. They said, usually after about two times of trying to get your uh, attention, God can no longer dissuade you from whatever stupid thing it is you want to do. That after a couple of times, you're just, you're not, you're gonna go through the yellows. You're just not gonna, uh, pause for the caution lights, um, anymore. And just and, and we even see an example in Pharaoh. Five different times we're told Pharaoh hardens his heart to uh, and, and oppresses the Israelites. So finally, after those five times, as we talked about previously, God just sort of lets it happen. And now Pharaoh is oppressing the people regularly. So part of it is is it's their stubbornness, their way of oppression, uh, and it's become so ingrained that they simply can't do anything else, and they can't even see the warning signs. Now, I might be tempted to laugh at the Egyptians, but laughing at them, I would only be laughing at myself because I've done the same thing in my own life. As some of you may know, uh, I'm a recovering workaholic. And for years, I was out six nights a week doing what I thought was God's work. And, 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 uh, and despite 
signs from my kids and family that they need me. I mean, because you can work and still make time for them. I mean, you can work a lot of hours and still carve time, but, but I, I wasn't. And they, and, and they tried to put up a yellow sign. <clears throat> One day we were driving down the road on Interstate 10, and my wife asked me to pull the car over to the side, which, like, you know, that's not really a good sign. And she wanted to talk to me about, about my schedule. I mean, there were lots of things, but I had done it so long and so often that I couldn't see the warning signs anymore. Or as an athletic parent, well, our parent of an athlete, I wasn't an athletic parent. As a parent of an athlete, you know, I, I, have you ever heard the saying that if you want it more than your kids do, that's a bad sign? And, and, and there would be struggles because of my pressure in our relationship, and I would just miss them. You do something long enough that you, it just becomes who you are. So what the Egyptians didn't do was whatever warning signs God had put in front of their oppressive habits over the years, they no longer paid attention to them anymore, and they just went headlong into it. So I think that's one of the things, is that they just were stubborn for making the same mistake over and over. One of my favorite uh, and more graphic Bible verses comes from the Proverbs that says that a person that keeps making the same mistake over and over is like a dog that returns to eat its vomit. It's not a pretty picture, but making the same mistake over and over isn't pretty either. But the Egyptians do that. I think there's another reason why they kind of contribute to their own self-destruction and why they keep riding this dead horse. And quite simply is, it's a mighty fine horse. It might be dead, but it was quite a horse. The chariots were Egyptians' uh, technological advantage over everybody else. Their war machine was better than everybody else's war machine. So they trusted in that war machine to conquer everyone else's. And they had not failed yet. It's no wonder that in Psalm 20, the psalm makes this observation. Some people trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the Lord. And the only reason the psalm can say that is because there are people who really do trust more in horse and chariots than they do in God. And those people are the Egyptians. It's an awesome horse and they don't want to give it up. Even when, it, even when it's on the ground. Even when it's dead. They don't want to give up what's worked for them in the past. I was chasing down this phrase. You can Google it and, and find out one of the applications is people that will do like leadership and management classes for businesses will sometimes talk about this when the horse dies, dismount. And they say it's amazing how many businesses won't do that. They'll keep riding the same horse. And so what happens is when the horse they're on dies, the first thing they do, if the horse dies, they change riders. Oh, we got to keep doing the same thing. Maybe we need a new CEO to, to handle, to lead this. They'll change riders. Or secondly, they'll form a committee to study the horse. How can we ride this dead horse more effectively? Or thirdly, they'll go to another business and see how they ride the dead horse. And we're so stuck in the ways that have worked for us in the past that we can't make the change. I know for me, when I was younger, I trusted in my body, strangely. Uh, I mean, I thought, you know, I, I was young enough I could get over this or push this or pull that or lift that. Well, you know, in recent years, I know I can't. But you know what I haven't been disabused of yet is trusting in my mind. I still think that there's rarely a problem that I can't solve if I just have enough time to think about it or a book that I can check out and read about it. But, you know, there are some issues that just don't yield 
to our best solutions. There are some things that are so new, are so different, that apart from some fresh insight from outside of our own brain, maybe through the Holy Spirit, we're simply not going to solve it. But my first thing is, I've ridden the horse of my education for a lot of years. I just need a little I need another workshop and I'll figure this one out. See, I think the real hero of the story this morning is Moses. The Israelites, I give them credit for walking through on the dry ground between the water. But the fact of the matter is, the water doesn't part unless Moses gets this inspiration to do it. What Moses does that the Israelites and the Egyptians don't do is Moses sees a possibility apart from chariots. We're told earlier in this chapter that the Israelites look at the chariots and they're terrified. So they trust in Egypt's chariots. They trust they'll get destroyed by them. And so they either need to surrender or die. And of course we know the Egyptians trust in the chariots. Moses is the only one in the picture who doesn't trust the chariots. Who knows there's another power that can act outside of these chariots. Moses knows there's another way to do this that hasn't yet been shown to the people, whether they be Israelites or Egypts. And so between the rock and the hard place, between the Red Sea and the Egyptians, Moses knows that those aren't the only two options. There's a third option, and that's what God will show him. As you may know, from time to time, um, uh, the pastors talk about how we're influenced by recovery literature because among the healthiest people in the world are those who have fought through and continue to fight through addiction. And one of, of course, the important tenets of going through recovery is this. You admit that you are powerless over the substance or the activity that has you enslaved. And so you open yourself to another possibility. And that's what Moses did. Now, I want you to see one more thing. When did Moses do it? Moses did it, and it appeared to Moses at the time when it seemed the darkest, at the time when it seemed hopeless. And I just want to tell you this to remind you of timing, that if if I'm Moses, I would prefer that I can look or send a scout seven miles ahead and see that the water's already parted. I would much prefer that. I would like to know the answer ahead of time. I would like to know how God's going to act and how God is going to provide. But the biblical example after example all the way through is that God doesn't seem to show it to you until that very last moment. When you finally decide the way that you've done it before or the way that makes sense to you is not going to work and you're ready for something new. And different and seemingly impossible. When you're up against the sea with the Egyptians behind you, you can look behind, you can look ahead, you can even look within. But ultimately, for that miracle, you'll need to look up.